0: Thank you, Warren. Well, this morning we are going to complete our series in uh, the book that I've been recommending, When the Church Was a Family, by Joe Hellerman. Uh, It is, uh, from my vantage point, it's been a terrific study. And the book offers us tremendous help and insight and understanding in terms of That whole concept of what is it like to be a family and how is the church like a family and where does that metaphor even stem from, so all the historical, contextual background. Uh, I know many have not even read the book, but I do want to commend it to you and encourage you to read it, and uh, some have been a bit critical of the book uh, as it's been a scholarly kind of effort. Uh, You can make it through. Uh, I've read it six times at least, my copy's all marked up, I got things in the margin, every time I read it I, I run across something I missed before, and so it's just like reading the Bible, it's, it's going to be fresh for you, but I do want to commend it to you, and it's a good reference to have in your library. But we're going to do uh, the conclusion uh, this morning, and uh, I want to uh, just kind of give you an overview, if you will, of the book itself, the the themes, and uh, the uh, chapter, uh, the concluding chapter. Now, Lord willing, if I can get through this material in in a timely manner, uh, I'm gonna try to have, save time for questions afterwards. So much as we did last week, if you have questions on anything you read, any of the material, the concepts, uh, anything I shared last week or even uh, this morning, Feel free to write your questions down and we'll take time, hopefully, to answer those questions. 1 John 3, verse 1, John writes this. He says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Notice in that verse, there's three terms that really speak of family. What are are the three terms? Can you pick them out? Love, father, and children. So John underscores this, this whole reality that we are children of God. We're part of God's family. And he's the kind of father that lavishes love on his children. Isn't that a beautiful picture? He doesn't just meet his love out with an eyedropper. You know, we don't have to qualify for it. We don't have to earn it. You know, if we're good kids, then maybe we'll experience some of his love. No, no, he lavishes his love on us. If you go back to the culture of the first century and the previous generations and the succeeding generations, the the ancient Near East, uh, the social values of that culture and society. The family priorities of people who lived in that particular culture, they were characterized by three fundamental principles. Now, you and I were not raised in that culture. Our enculturation, if you will, uh, brings along different perspectives. And so these people, Uh, When when Jesus establishes his church, uh, he does so out of this environment that these people are already familiar with. So these three principles I want to articulate to you were were common in that particular culture. People could relate to this. So it's reasonable, logical now for Jesus to take that culture and talk about his family given values, cultural values that people were already familiar with. Does that make sense? We are at a disadvantage, and our disadvantage is we didn't come out of that culture. Our our enculturation has a different set of priorities and values to it, and we'll try to point those out. So for, for many Westerners, it's difficult to make the transition as a Christian to understand what does it actually mean to be a Christian, beyond simply just being religious and, and, and very often we reduce our, our faith and our Christianity, although we say it's a relationship, it, it, we reduce it to just a legalistic practice because we don't know how to really relate uh, to God in a family kind of way. So let me articulate these three fundamental principles. And these principles served as a basis for Jesus' plan for his church to function as a family. The first principle is the group comes first. That is not something that is familiar and common to our Western culture. The group comes first. In the social world of the early Christians, the survival and the health of the group took priority over the needs and the desires of the individual. People in the New Testament world put the group first. This was common cultural value and practice. They put the, the group first. We, we, get, we give first place to what? To us, the individual. We It's all about me. It's what I want. And if the group gets in the way, the heck with the group. I'm going to do what I want. I mean, that's the reality of our culture. The needs, the goals, the desires, quite simply, of the individual come first in our Western culture. Personal allegiance to the group, where the group is my family or my church or my uh, coworkers or some civic organization that I may participate with. uh, These in our culture today come as secondary considerations. The bottom line for us is the individual comes first. This is antithetical to the New Testament. And I think we we could acknowledge that, gain some perspective, but the reality is you have to ask, yourself: where do I actually live? Does the group come first or is it all about me? Again, in the world and the culture of the early church, personal decisions were made with a view to group honor and social solidarity. So if I'm going to make a decision, I don't make a decision in a vacuum, I live in the context of a family, of a group, and whatever decision I make is going to impact my family, it's going to impact my group. And so I have to subordinate my decision, whatever it may be, for the good of the group, the good of the family. Am I making sense? This is, the, this is the mentality that governed the culture of the ancient Near East. And this is what Jesus drew out of that culture and used as a basis to establish his family, his new family, the church. The second principle, it's all about Family. The social group to which the people of the ancient Near East expressed primary relational allegiance was the family. Family was everything to the ancient people. Not so today, unfortunately. In the ancient Near East, the good of the family was to take priority over one's personal desires and personal aspirations. So you can see this would bring, this would. This, in our culture, this brings us into real conflict with family. Just just natural families. Are the decisions I'm making going to bring honor to my family or are they going to bring dishonor? How are they going to affect it? Do I just effectively say, well, the heck with you. I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it because it makes me feel good. The third principle I am my brother's keeper. Again, people of the first century viewed family quite differently than we we do in our culture. For people in the world of Jesus, family consisted of those who were related by blood, the father's blood, the bloodline which marked family membership would travel from generation to generation to generation and it would do so solely through male offspring. We call this patrilineal, from the father on down through sons and so forth. In the ancient Near East, the marriage relationship was not the closest relationship. In our culture, we make the marriage relationship the closest relationship, not so in the ancient Near East. Now, we have to be careful how we apply this because I don't want you to misunderstand. We, marry, we, we value marriage highly for a number of reasons. But in the ancient Near East, marriage was not the closest relationship. The closest relationship amongst the ancient peoples was what, what relationship do you think? The sibling relationship. Brothers and sisters. So, though I may be married... I was more loyal to my brothers and my sisters in that culture than I was to my wife, if you will. Now, it sounds strange to us. It's hard for us to get get our heads around that one, but that's the, the dynamic. But there's a special application for us now, for members of the church. We can understand, now stay with me, we can understand and appreciate the family orientation now of the church of Jesus Christ, Because once you become a Christian, you are my brother and my sister. This now becomes my closest relationship as a believer. Jesus established his followers as a faith family. And practical expressions of brotherhood would soon come to epitomize what it meant for the early Christians to relate to one another as brother and sister, as Jesus fully intended. And again, it's, a, it's the point, jumping off point was the relationship between siblings in that culture. So now there's a surrogate family. And the surrogate family is what? Brothers and sisters. These are the relationships. I am my brother's keeper. The loyalty is there. Are you with me? Now, whatever else they may have been, the first followers of Jesus were preeminently a society of siblings. You are my brother, you are my sister. My wife is my sister. Our marriage is going to cease when Jesus comes back, but we will forever and ever and ever be brother and sister. Jesus viewed his followers as now a new family, and he challenged them to reconsider. Now, this is important. He challenged them to reconsider their their loyalty to their families of origin. Again, this is something we have to be, be very careful about, so I want you to listen closely. Jesus modeled himself. He modeled his surrogate family values in his own life. And how did he do that? He did it, quite frankly, by publicly distancing himself from his own natural family. He did it again and again and again. There are ample examples uh, in Hellerman's book and out of the New Testament, out of the Gospel record. Now, Jesus is not insensitive at all to individual needs, but he did teach that the individual needs of his followers, the members of his new family, That those needs would be fully met in the context of what? Their new family. You see that played out clearly in the book of Acts in the early chapters. Acts chapter 2. The new church is formed, Pentecost has happened. People are coming to Christ. People, they're being added by the thousands and they're fellowshipping and needs are being met. And and Luke says that uh, wherever there was a need, it was taken care of. Acts chapter four, the same kind of thing. Those two passages characterize the family life where individuals really looked at the others in the church as their brother and sister. And that, that relationship became the preeminent relationship. Jesus spoke about family in three distinct ways. And this this is where we can get a little bit confused when you read these things. Some of his teachings appear to be mutually contradictory. For instance, at times Jesus was unequivocally affirming of natural family relationships. He affirmed a natural family relationship. For instance, he reiterated, in Matthew chapter 15, he reiterated the fifth commandment. And what's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. So he seemed to be very, very supportive of that commandment, honor your father and mother. In Matthew chapter 19, he upholds marriage and he disallows divorce. And in that same chapter, chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, he he is seen to welcome the little children to himself. Don't hinder the children from coming to me. So in these passages, as examples, Jesus uh, was unreservedly family friendly. However, there are other passages. And other passages portray Jesus in precisely the opposite light. He seems to be not family friendly at all. In Matthew chapter 10, he said that the gospel would separate the natural family. Listen to these stark words. In verse 34, do not be supposed that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, does that sound like he's pro-family? No, but he's, he's beginning to speak about the formation of this new family and the gospel is going to be the dividing line. People are going to have to choose. They're going to have to make a decision with respect to their loyalty to their natural family or their loyalty to this brand new surrogate family that he's bringing into existence. He said in Luke chapter 14, if anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. He is drawing a stark distinction there. Would you agree? Between this life and this new life. And he uses this word, hate. I don't know about you, but that's always troubled me. It's always troubled me. Hellerman has a a good explanation and a good discussion of that in his book. He says the issue here relates to the relative degree of loyalty, relative degree of loyalty, a follower of Jesus assigns to his new faith family versus his commitment to his family of origin. So I gotta make a choice. And when I make this choice over here for my new faith family, it's going to be such a clear, stark choice. It's almost going to look like I deny my, my, my family of origin. And again, he uses that word hate. And it, it really it doesn't mean to necessarily dislike intensely as we would use it typically. But more, it's a relative statement and it speaks like uh, to sever one's relationship with the family. In fact, he says in another place that in Matthew 16, that if we're going to be his disciple, we must what? Deny our very self. Deny our self. So in much the same way, it comes to the point where we deny this other new, this other old relationship in favor of a brand new relationship. He said to a man who wished to bury his father, you'll recall, in Matthew chapter 8, and this was an honorable thing to do. He said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, you got to make a decision. You've been sitting on the fence. You've got to make a decision. If you're going to stay over there, the dead bury their own. You come with me. Follow me. Now, in addition to these apparently mixed messages about the natural family, Jesus instructed his disciples about another kind of family, a new family. One not based on blood, not based on the blood, literal blood lineage, but based on a common relationship with God. And this relationship would be based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but not a shared blood in the lineage. It's based on a relationship now. And this relationship, this new relationship, must take precedence over the old. Every one of us comes to that point of decision. If I'm going to follow Jesus, it must of necessity mean that I am going to deny all the previous relationships. It sounds cold, sounds hard. It's not. But the reality is I can't give myself fully if I'm still holding on. It's kind of like, you, you have an adulterated bond with Jesus. Adulterated relationship. It's adulterated by this other relationship you're holding on to. This is, this is the fundamental meaning of adultery. We think of adultery typically in, in, in uh, sexual terms, but really it simply means an incomplete, I'm, I'm, I'm not able to completely bond with this other person. This previous bond has to become extinct through either through death or divorce or an ample time so I can make a full commitment. Are you with me on that one? He says in Matthew 23, you are all brothers. So for all brothers, it speaks of a whole brand new family. I wasn't your brother before. I wasn't, you weren't my sister, my brother before. But now we are. He's calling me into a brand new family relationship. And Jesus modeled this in his own family relationships. You remember in in, uh, the Gospels, particularly Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching, and uh, his his family thinks he's gone off the deep end. He's he's lost his mind. And so they go to retrieve him. Mark chapter 3, verse 31 says that when Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And he responded, he says, oh, okay, I'll be right out. Tell mom and my brothers I'll be right out. No, he didn't, did he? This was a huge teaching moment in which he's going to make a clear declaration of just exactly who his mother and brothers and sisters are. And he's using his own life. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those who who were seated around in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will, God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. Huge shift, huge shift. And it's here that Jesus exhibits himself his loyalty to his new surrogate family, and that would exceed any ongoing loyalty toward his natural family. He's made the shift. I think, I think also, remember at the wedding feast at Cana, where he does the first miracle? And, and his mother comes to him and says, uh, they run out of wine. What did he say to her? What do I have to do with you? I think Contextually, you could probably say, you know, he's made a break right there. He's sending a signal right there. Although he does supply the guy with wine. So Jesus is now encouraging all of his followers to do the same thing. The challenge in Jesus' radical call to discipleship, and it is a radical call. It's not something that's easy. It's not something that's convenient. It's a costly call. It's not simply a challenge to prioritize loyalty to Jesus as an individual over loyalty to one's family. It's far more than that. A disciple must choose between two families. His natural family and Jesus new surrogate family of believers. He's constantly make your choice. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to follow? You can't straddle these, these, these relationships. Paul, Paul picks up on Jesus' vision for the church's family. And you see this in, in every one of the letters he writes of all the churches. You just read chapter after chapter, and, and you read these words, you find these words. Brother, sister, adoption, inheritance, father, uh, children, children of God. These terms occupy nearly every single chapter of Paul's letters. And you read those things, you go, wow, Paul gets it. He's picked up Jesus' vision for this new family and he's carrying it on. He expected that this sibling solidarity, this new family, would be reflected in the attitudes and as well in the very behavior of believers towards one another. In other words, our relationships have to exhibit the kind of love, the kind of attitude, the kind of behavior that would be reminiscent of these ancient families where sibling solidarity was a key, key dynamic. This is is to mark the church. The believers would experience, in that context, a deep affection for one another. A deep commitment for one another. You read these things in in all of the one another's of the New Testament. Paul speaks about them a lot, and, and some of the other writers do also. Let me just quote some of them for you. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this He says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. In chapter 15, he says, accept one another. In chapter sixteen, he says, "Greet one another with a holy kiss." I mean, you can't give us more intimate than that—greeting your brother with a holy kiss. In Galatians chapter five, he says, "Serve one another in love." In Ephesians four two, be patient, bearing with one another in love. In Ephesians chapter four verse thirty two, be kind and compassionate to one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, encourage one another. Build each other up. Don't tear each other down. Build each other up. The writer to the Hebrews picks up the same theme in Hebrews 3.13. He says, encourage one another every day. Every day. How many need encouragement every day? Yeah. Man, you see somebody, man, you, you... If you say anything, say an encouraging word. Hey, it's good to see you You look good. Must have lost some weight. I had gained weight. Oh, you look good. (laughs) James says the same thing. James says, do not slander one another. Peter writes this, love one another deeply from the heart. And of course, John, in 1 John, simply puts it this way, love one another. So you see see this, this, this call to attitude and behavior amongst now this new relationship, these new sibling relationships. And Paul challenged these believers also to exhibit their sibling relationship, their sibling solidarity by sharing their material resources. And the greatest example, I think, of this is in his letter to the Corinthians, and then you read in the book of Acts about his missionary journeys, and he's taking up a collection. He's going to all the Gentile churches, strengthening them, but also using the occasion to take an offering, take a collection. And what's he taking the collection for? Anybody remember? Yeah, the saints in Jerusalem. So here's a a way in, in Paul's missionary strategy to get the Gentile believers to see the Jewish believers up in Jerusalem who were impoverished and suffering, they're brothers. To bring a Jew and a Gentile together in that ancient world was no easy thing. They were, The Jews looked at the Gentiles as dogs, unclean dogs. You couldn't touch a Gentile. That would render you ceremonially unclean. And you can imagine, if a Gentile understood that, how they would then react to a Jew. You know, this, this I mean, you're talking about the ultimate racism, the ultimate uh, uh, prejudice, if you will. So they, they didn't get along. So Paul says, you know, when you get to the pocketbook, that's when you really show you care. Isn't that true? And so he takes up this collection so that the Gentiles and the Jews would know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are brothers by sharing these material resources. And Paul, like Jesus, prioritized the faith family over the natural family. Very simply. This new family, with its love, sharing, loyalty, if you, if you just study the history of the church and the history of Western civilization, over the next two and a half centuries, against all odds... This new movement of brothers and sisters won literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people to Jesus and literally turned the Roman Empire up on its head. Just a, what a movement. Here, this little obscure movement started by an itinerant rabbi who was killed in, outside Jerusalem, nailed to a cross, the, common, the death of a common criminal, and, and all of a sudden, this movement just begins to expand and explode and explode over the two, next two and a half centuries. Incredible. Against all odds. Isn't that awesome? And it was just as Jesus had said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. Why? This was such a key dynamic. Love. In in the Roman Empire, by this time, things had gotten really, really bad, really gross. You think our culture is insensitive. You think our culture is uh, selfish. Man, the Roman culture was unbelievable. People were starving, starving for relationship and love and affection and those kinds of things, deep personal needs that were going tremendously unmet. The society was a utilitarian society, much like ours today, unfortunately. And yet, here's this little group of people growing and growing, and they're exhibiting this dynamic of of sibling solidarity, love, affection, commitment, And, and the Romans are looking at this, and the whole people in the Roman Empire are going, whoa, what is this? I want that. I want that. And more and more people were getting saved. The question now for us is, how do we, how do we sharpen our focus on, on these issues? How do we sharpen our focus on Jesus' vision for church's family? There were two essential values that gave the ancient church much of its social capital, credibility, if you will, and relational integrity. And these were dynamics that were essential for the continuation of the life of the early church. Values, I think you'll agree that ought to characterize any community whatsoever, any group of people that seek to identify themselves as Christian. These are absolutely essential. The first one we've been talking about, relational solidarity. And we can summarize this dynamic by saying Christianity in the Roman world of the first three centuries was a community endeavor. And it was organized around a surrogate family model in which two things were true. First, individual Christians place the good of the church family above their own goals, desires, and aspirations. That's a fundamental. That's a fundamental. I'm going to place the good of the church above my own decisions. Far, far too many Christians today are compromising. Compromising their relationship with their brothers and sisters because of their own desires and aspirations. Secondly, church members could count on the support of their brothers and sisters, and especially if you're a brand new Christian and and coming to Christ and becoming a believer, now you're entering this new family, it may in fact cause uh, some material or personal uh, challenges simply to pay a price to become a Christian. And now you've got a whole new family that's surrounding you that'll help you and support you. Uh, Hellerman cites the example, uh, the first century, of uh, the, uh, the man that was the actor. Do you remember that one? Those of you who read the book? The actor. Now, acting and acting in, in, in plays and such, in that time frame, they were always, always associated with gross immorality. Uh, pagan gods, and every time... You had idolatry, you always had sexual immorality uh, as its twin accompanying it. So the, all the plays and all the, the events, social events, were, were characterized by gross social and, and sexual immorality. Well, so this guy now becomes a believer. And he realizes that he cannot any longer be an actor. It's contrary to his new profession. So, so he says, well, I'll start, a, uh, I'll start an actor's school. Well, you can't do that either because you can't teach other people to do this stuff. So now he doesn't have a job. Now he has no means of supporting himself. And so the church gathers around him and says, we'll support you. We'll provide for you. You get time, you can discover or, or develop a new way to sustain yourself. So this is, these are the things that were characteristic of this relational solidarity. The second value is just as important and just as critical as the first. The second value is robust boundaries. I'm using Hellerman's term because I think it is such a picturesque, powerful term. Robust boundaries, not squishy boundaries, not relative boundaries, not, well, you know, I just slide over here, be a little slippery. No, no, robust boundaries. You get the picture of that? Robust boundaries. Boundaries that served clearly to distinguish those who belonged to the local Christian community from those who did not. Wow. Now, the question today is how are Christians today? How are you and I doing today along these same lines? And sadly, for many believers, Christianity is no longer a community or family endeavor. Instead, many choose to focus on experiencing God solely at the individual level. It's a kind of lone ranger spirituality. And as a result, they they will never benefit. They'll never enjoy the benefit of being part of the family and part of the, the, the ongoing support, encouragement, deep, meaningful relationships with others in the church family. And, and vice versa, the church family won't benefit by the grace that they can bring into those family relationships. And in many church environments, the idea of robust boundaries, simply today in our culture, this very idea does not resonate. <laughs> you know, you're a legalist. You're not tolerant. We're supposed to be a community of love. Yes, we are. But at the same time, we're supposed to have some boundaries, some clear understandings and categories. While we may be enthusiastic, certainly, for the idea of relational solidarity, love, authenticity, mutual support, encouragement, those kinds of things, issues that served to delineate the robust boundaries of the New Testament church were very clear. Sexual immorality was not tolerated. Lack of repentance when sinning against a brother, not tolerated. Unwillingness to forgive a repentant brother, not tolerated. You remember when Paul? Paul said, cast this, this unrepentant brother out for the destruction of his flesh. And the whole point was hoping that he would become repentant. And then when he did in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, welcome that brother back. Propagation of false doctrine, not allowed. This was a huge battle in the New Testament churches. John writes about it, Paul writes about it. Peter addresses it. Divisiveness, not tolerated, no divisiveness. Even idleness, laziness, not tolerated. Paul says if a man is able to work and he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. We go, oh man, that's awfully hard. Because we're all soft and compassionate, lovey dovey, and we can't hardly bear to see anybody in that situation, so we rush to their aid. Wait a minute, if the person's able to work and they don't work, they don't eat. They had robust boundaries. They didn't go to R-rated movies. They didn't go to PG-13 movies. I know it's a little squirming. We, we don't have robust boundaries, quite frankly. We live in individualistic Christianity. We don't realize the actions and choices we make. We do not realize how in the spiritual realm they affect the body. We don't get it because we don't see it. We live in a very worldly, materialistic world. And while we acknowledge the spiritual, we don't realize how powerful and how real the spiritual realm is. Am I making sense here? People in the New Testament who live their lives according to their community values. According to their family standards, these people remained part of the family. But those who did not were excluded. And they were very, very deliberate about it. Church discipline was a very real issue. We rarely exercise church discipline for fear of hurting somebody's feelings, for fear of what people are going to think, for fear of being sued. It just, it's gotten out of hand in the modern American church. There are many today who quite simply, in the name of tolerance, in the name of inclusion, think the church needs to redefine the time-tested, biblically-based boundaries that characterize community in that early church. Well, that was then. This is now. We're modern people. We're modern people, and we, and we should be really inclusive. We should, we should accept everybody regardless. No. No, only those who are, who are willing to repent and to bring their lives in line with God's design. If we, if we define Christianity, if we define Christian community only in terms of relational solidarity, in other words, let's all get along and we ignore or reject these robust boundaries, that second dynamic, we are left with nothing. We're left with nothing but an emasculated, localized, postmodern, Western version of community that bears little resemblance to the surrogate family model of the ancient Christian church, and which is actually no longer worthy of the name Christian at all. What makes us distinct? Our relationship, our new family, and how we live in that new family. We are called to live radically differently than we lived before. This isn't rocket science. The concept of church as family, you can can just, it finds its origins, if you will, in the relational values and practices of of the natural family simply. I think all of us would agree, a healthy family needs two things, love and discipline. Would you agree? A healthy family needs love and it needs discipline. You can't just have love. We call that enabling (laughs) in our modern parlance. Oh, I love you. I love you so much you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter, you know, I don't like it, but I just love you so much I'm not going to make you do anything different. You're going to create a maniac who knows no boundaries, has no limits, doesn't understand. The family needs love. We call it, in in our parlance this morning, we call it relational solidarity. They're equivalents. Discipline, equivalent term, robust boundaries. Robust boundaries. Experience demonstrates again and again and again that to place a high priority on relationships while ignoring the need for discipline, ignoring the need for boundaries in the name of love or tolerance, inevitably results in a highly dysfunctional family unit. (laughs) And, And that family ultimately undermines the very relationships in the context of that family. You got a mess on your hands. You just simply have a mess on your hands. Now there's another issue that I want to address. And that's the relationship between salvation and community. God's primary objective, this is important to get a hold of, God's primary objective throughout salvation history. Now, where am I going to go to find salvation history recorded? That's right, the, the Bible. This is the record, among other things, of God's salvation history. And his objective has been the creation of a people for his own possession. A community inhabited by the Holy Spirit and characterized by justice, mercy, grace, love, all exercised in a context of relational accountability. Mount Sinai, God brings them to Mount Sinai where He gives them the law. And in giving them the law, he gave the Jews their national identity. They're now his people. He says, you are my people. I've chosen you for myself. And then Pentecost. At both Mount Sinai and Pentecost, the salvation of God's people was a community-creating event Relational solidarity. We're all together in this. The point is not necessarily to downplay God's concern for us as individuals. He does care for us as individuals. But it must be recognized that in the New Testament time, a person was saved not solely to enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus. There's more than that. A person was saved to community. Community with Jesus and community with these new brothers and sisters. Our limited conception of Jesus as personal Savior is the unfortunate distortion that resulted from our own American individualistic thinking. My personal Savior, it's me and Jesus. I, I've talked to people, you talked to me. Maybe you were one of these people. He said, yeah, you know, I don't need to go to church. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. It's Me and God, we go down to the beach. We surf together. We go hiking together. We enjoy the mountains. We go fishing together. We do all, me and God, me and Jesus. The phrase personal relationship with God is nowhere in the Bible. And we've appropriated it. And we've made it tantamount to being scripture. But a, the New Testament tells us that we are saved to community. Salvation involves being reborn into the family of God. A family that includes both a new father and new siblings, new brothers and sisters Biblical salvation. What kind of salvation? Biblical salvation. This is how the Bible sees salvation. This is not an individualistic perspective. This is, when you talk about salvation, you want to talk about biblical salvation. Biblical salvation is a community creating event. What is it? That's right. Now, to be sure, a convert to Christianity needs to do business with God as an individual, trusting in Jesus' finished work on that cross for the forgiveness of his or her sins. We understand that. That's basic. That's fundamental. But the cross of Christ isn't the end point. It simply is the doorway. It's the entrance, if you will, to membership in God's family and God's pattern for life together. (gasps) I have a whole new family. My sins are forgiven. Hallelujah. But i got more than that. I've got a whole brand new family, a whole new way of living. We are saved not simply to enjoy a personal relationship with God. We are saved to community. I want to suggest to you that there is no room in biblical Christianity for an unchurched Christian. No room. No room. When a person is truly saved, now think about this. When a person is truly saved, when they are really born again, should there be evidence of that fact in their life? Should there be some kind of fruit? Should people look at us and say, I knew you then, I know you now, I like you better now. (laughs) You're different. You're kinder, you're more approachable, you're something about you. What is it? I are a Christian now. There should be a difference. And if if our thesis is correct, that salvation is in fact a community creating event, if conversion to Christianity means being saved to community, then it would seem for a conversion to be genuine. This relational aspect of salvation must somehow find expression in the everyday life of a professing Christian now. In other words, if you're a Christian, why aren't you in the family? Why aren't you hanging out with your new brothers and sisters? Why do you isolate? Making sense? There should be some fruit. I'm not just saved for a personal relationship with Jesus, I'm saved to community. God's purpose is to create a brand new family and he means to include all of us. Every tongue, tribe, nation, people. Isn't that exciting? I mean, you just look around this room. If you could stand up here, look from my vantage point. We've got just about that. <laughs> it's exciting. And, and, and so when we evangelize, when we, we talk to friends, unsaved friends and family, and we talk to them about becoming a Christian, We tell them not only are they going to receive a new father, but they're going to get a brand new set of brothers and sisters when they give their lives to Jesus. Your life's going to change. You're going to be in a different community. And we've got to help people realize that these two relationships with God and with his family are inseparable. I are part of the family now. The idea of encouraging people to pray a prayer of personal repentance to accept Jesus as their personal savior and thereby become a child of God, must be accompanied by the challenge to become part of God's family also. Otherwise, I think you'll agree, we simply perpetuate the radical individualism that has rendered American Christianity culturally and morally impotent. The church is irrelevant. It's not a force to be reckoned with. Oh, on the fringe politically maybe. But in terms of people's lives, people mock us. They laugh at us. You, you, just, you, you people are dodo heads. Because they don't really see power. They don't see the kind of solidarity. They don't see the kind of robustness to our faith in our lives that, that the, new, new, the first century church exhibited, which affected powerfully the Roman Empire. And we simply blatantly ignore the New Testament picture of being born again as a community-creating event, and to ignore this just guarantees that our so-called converts will continue to take their quote-unquote personal savior from relationship to relationship, from marriage to marriage, from church to church. People just hopping from one relationship, one marriage, one church to another. Tragic. Never put their roots down. And it just results in their own social, spiritual demise. Even a newborn baby needs to be held, loved, nurtured, included in the family. You take a brand new baby, you set him on the, on the sideboard in the delivery room, you just set him there, no one touches him, no one has anything to do with him, it won't be long before that baby dies. There's something in us that needs spiritual, personal nourishing. And the same thing for a brand new baby Christian. They've got to be in part of the family. We encourage that. We need to cultivate the kind of spiritual, social environment where non-believers, even new believers, they can come in our church and they can experience firsthand Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community. We want people to come and say, wow, this this is church. This is great. I like this. I want more of this. And people do, they remark, they, they see, the, they see you greeting each other and they, they see the, the relationships that are, that are in process. And I watch them, I watch people that sit and they look around and I know, they're thinking, would someone come and say hello to me? They'll not only be intrigued by Jesus, they'll see how following Jesus works out in the context of real life relationships. Oh man. Was the early church on fire? Absolutely. Why was the early church on fire? Because they believed this stuff and they lived it out. I want to suggest to you, I want to quote Hellerman again at the end of this chapter. He says, when the church is a family, in the fullest sense of that word, then he says the church is on fire. All you have to do is go back to the book of Acts. You see the church on fire. You see the relational solidarity. You see those robust boundaries. You see them living out this this vision that Jesus has, that God has for his church. Man, these people were on fire, and they affected everybody around them. May God help us to continually sharpen our focus. It's like you're writing with a pencil. I write with pencils, number two pencils. I have stacks of them. And when you're right with the number two pencil, the lead wears down, and you've got to resharpen it and resharpen it and resharpen it. Though we may be doing some good things, may God help us sharpen our focus and resharpen our focus on Jesus' vision for authentic Christian community. Amen? Amen. All right, I have a few minutes for questions. Linda. I've got um, a friend that has obviously got a relationship with Christ and, and, and reads her Bible. And I asked her, why don't you go to church? And she says she never found a church that she felt was on the right track. Okay, the question is, she has a friend who reads her Bible, professes to be a Christian, doesn't go to church. Linda asked her, why don't you go to church? Well, I've never found a church that I really think is on track. My response, there is no perfect church. Get in one, start, come with me to my church. We're friends. If you can identify with me, probably you can identify with my church. Let's get involved. Just make a start. I use this phrase always. Come and see. Come and see. Come seven times in a row. Come and see. And I I promise you, Uh, you make a connection. You have a connection. You're going to introduce people. Introduce them to Winnie. God help us. (laughs) Winnie is one of the most serious women of God that I know. I'm serious. I mean, you, you meet Winnie. She does not, she's not foolishness. She's not frivolous. You introduce her to these people. And I promise you, you know, wow, this is, this is, It can be a little intimidating, but it's fun. Anybody else? Keith? I need to elaborate. You said we should be a part of the church family to the, quote, exclusion of our blood family, but where's the balance? That is too broad and on the face value denies the fifth commandment of honoring our parents. You need to clarify that the, quote, exclusion is where there is a blood family call to deny God's will similar to to submitting to the world's government, except where the world's government calls us to deny God's will and obey God's will. And (laughs) Paul writes... Wait a minute. Hold Hold on. on. And Paul writes that he does not take care of his own family as worse than infidel. So please elaborate and show the balance. Okay, first of all, on, on, on the big picture, there's two families now. Agreed. And Jesus very simply makes a distinction between your natural family and this new family that He's bringing into existence. Where the two come in conflict, where your choice, you have to make a choice. You opt not for your family of origin. certainly if they're non-believers, you opt for your brand new family. What's the elaboration I'm speaking of of the God's will, or called the call to disobey God? I can still honor, let's say, uh, I had this question last night. Uh, A woman said to me, she said, what if if my mother is a non-believer, I love all these speculative issues, (laughs) what if my mother is a non-believer and my husband and I have to take care of her? Should we do it? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, there's no contradiction there. Then she says, well, what if taking care of her means that I have to, we we don't have enough money to do it so we don't tithe. And we make taking care of my mother the tithe. What do you think there? No, there's other ways to deal with this. So I said, look, I I said, you honor God first. The tithe belongs to God. Have we talked about that? That's his. I mean, it's all his, but he just asks for a tithe. So you honor him with a tithe. You obey him. Well, what am I to do with my mother? Well, you may have to change your lifestyle. You may have to sell some stuff. You may have to get rid of your cable TV. You may have to get rid of your cigarettes. You may have to, I don't know, you know, we'll sit down and go over your budget. But I promise you, if God has put you in a place where he wants you to take care of your mother who's an invalid and you're going to have to pay the freight on her, you don't re- do the expedient thing of taking away from your tithe. You just, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot doing that. But there's other ways to skin that cat. Pardon the expression. You hate cats. It's okay. We know you don't like cats. All the cat lovers just cringed yeah the dog lovers laugh right. so i think i think there's there's on the surface of it there's 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 a, a clear clear distinction to be made but i think there's ways in which we can continue to honor them but if if you're if you're a believer and the choices that you face your life uh, it comes down to you know my natural family or my spiritual family, I opt for my spiritual family. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, I just want, like I said, I wanted you to elaborate on the exclusion. Okay, well, that's as much as I can elaborate right now. That's fine. Okay. Any other questions? We have a couple minutes. Yeah. Nadine. If the natural family is from the line of Christ, they're all believers. Okay, if your natural family is believers, you they're your brothers and sisters, Yeah, they're, they're just, they're all part of the family now, right? So you don't really have a dilemma there. Right. Albeit, if they're your brothers and sisters now, they're also accountable. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Matthew I got lost when it said, you know, don't call anybody rabbi, father, teacher. Oh, Matthew 23? When he's, he's talking about uh, don't, uh, don't be called rabbi, teacher, and such. He's, he's really uh, talking about don't set yourself up as the premier person above your brothers and sisters. You're a your, your brother, you're a sister. You're all brothers, he says in that passage. So that's where we derive this whole idea, uh, of, from Jesus at least, of plurality of leadership. We're all brothers, we're all equals. Albeit there can be um, uh, first among equals. Peter is an example of that. But uh, I think, really, you know, it was in that in that culture where people did set themselves apart, or they were set apart. And this is this was my suggestion that we move away from what we have done in our own church of the quote-unquote senior pastor uh, because we're. You know, we're all basically the same. So, does that help? Yeah. Okay. Larry? Uh, You said, when you get to the pocketbook, that's where we show how much we really care. Typically, when we get to the pocketbook, that's where we show we really do care. I'm trying to figure out how to rephrase. Do you think that our, our, our present governmental system is fulfilling the role that we as the church should have been doing all along and have for the last... Okay, I, I'm with you. Okay, so is our present government role or the role it's fulfilling, has it usurped the designated role of the church as a social institution to speak into our into our society to help people charity wise and so forth. And We're, should we do anything about it or should we just be happy with what we have? Well, I think clearly it starts it starts in the local congregation. And and I think we do a, a really good job of this. We have a you've been on the church council, you know we have a benevolence program, so we it's not widely announced because, you know, we don't want people necessarily to be embarrassed and So, But people do, through the leadership, if you're part of the family, if you're in a mini church or a small group, you're known, you're a known quantity. And as people get to know you, you share out of your life. And all of a sudden now, so so here's Robert, he's in a mini church, and so he's lost his job, and he can't make his rent. And so uh, the people in that mini church will help him refashion his budget, fulfilling that social role, if you will. And if it's beyond what the mini church can do, his brothers and sisters in that little church family, then it goes to the larger venue of the church. And administratively, if you will, we will then step in to help him meet his responsibilities until he can find work again. That's kind of basically what you're talking about, right? Yeah, but what you're saying is we're doing all we can do. I, I, I don't know that we're doing all that we could do. It, 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 the church, universal. Yeah, we are doing that right now. This is the whole point of going to an elder-led church, get more people involved in the conversation. And uh, the more the conversation, uh, the more the ideas, the more the ideas, the more the um, inventiveness, if you will, of how to address these issues. But I do think, because in many ways the church is not fulfilled, certain aspects of the Great Commission that the government has usurped the responsibility and stepped in now you've got all these social programs mm-hmm. I'm not saying that we don't need some kind of larger safety net for the population at large but I'm talking specifically about Christians right now mm-hmm. and I mean we're going out to Crenshaw we're spending a tremendous amount of money in Crenshaw uh, you know we're going to support Bruce full-time <coughs> up out of Crenshaw uh, paying for the paying all the freight on that. That's that's expensive to do. But these people are are non-believers. We want them to to know and understand, hey, there are some people who care about you. And we're not in to get anything out of it ourselves, uh, but we're here to serve. So that's a great example of how God is calling us to be continually involved. We have missionary families who we support around the world who are reaching into communities and environments uh, where the gospel is not welcome necessarily. And, uh, you know, we pray for them and we encourage them, but we also give them our financial support. So these, these things are happening, but I, I think that there are certainly are areas where maybe it's easy, it's easy for us to just say, well, you know, go get on welfare. Go to the government. Now, they didn't have that in the New Testament. The church did that. So I think that's the the tension that Larry's feeling. I think all of us are feeling it. Okay, shall we close a word of prayer? If you have more questions, you can come to the next service. (laughs) (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church, and we thank you for your provision. We thank you for saving us, but not just saving us individually, saving us corporately. Help us, Lord, to have a firmer grasp on this whole idea of church as family and that in that context, the decisions we make, that we know and understand those decisions do impact our larger family one way or another. And that we be careful, that we seek wise counsel. And where wise counsel is given, that we follow that counsel and not rebel, as hard as it may be for some of us. Father, again, we ask your blessing, your strength, And your spirit guide us, continually direct us. And uh, Lord, that we bring you glory through how we conduct ourselves as part of your family. We love you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Turn to your neighbor. Pronounce a family blessing on your neighbor.